So he's looking at the world, he's looking at a world of destruction and loss and chaos. From which vantage point can we stand to make honest sense of this or to somehow transcend it or to somehow better endure it? One of the things that came to mind was on the bottom of page 31, the last two lines, love is most nearly itself when here and now cease to matter. And love, I think, is a big part of, of this poem. There's these lines that say, Every phrase and every sentence is an end and a beginning. Every poem, an epitaph, and any action is a step to the block, to the fire, down the sea's throat, or to an illegible stone. And that is where we start. Hello everyone. In today's class, you'll hear a discussion between me and Aaron and Marin about T.S. Eliot's four quartets. And at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just for fun writing prompt that will get you thinking about the relationship between poetry and time. So the quote I'd like to begin today's recording with is actually directly from the text we'll be discussing today. It's something I don't usually do, but in this particular case, I love this section of the Four Quartets so much that you'll probably hear me reading it now and later in the, in the actual conversation. I try to reread this as often as I can. I think it's a very important reminder that can help us make sure we're writing with good motives instead of bad ones. And I just also find it incredibly encouraging and perceptive. So this is from East Coker in Four Quartets. And so each venture is a new beginning, arrayed on the inarticulate with shabby equipment always deteriorating in the general mess of imprecision of feeling, undisciplined squads of emotion. And what there is to conquer by strength and submission has already been discovered once or twice or several times by men whom one cannot hope to emulate. But there is no competition. There is only the fight to recover what has been lost and found and lost again and again, and now under conditions that seem unpropitious. But perhaps neither gain nor loss. For us there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. To begin, I love his description of how difficult writing can sometimes feel. Language indeed does feel like shabby equipment always deteriorating, and the subject matter that we write about can often feel like undisciplined squads of emotion. On top of all that, it can be very discouraging to re look through the many centuries of fantastic poetry and realize that Eliot is right again when he says that what there is to write about has already been written about once or twice or several times by poets whom we could never hope to emulate. But I love the way that he repivots our attention and our motivations, reminding us that there is no competition. And in fact, we do have a very important job to do. It's not to emulate Shakespeare or Dickinson or Keats or compete with them, but it's to recover them, to bring them back into the collective memory of our generation, to keep reminding people of how great language is and how wonderful poetry can be. Lastly, he emphasizes that it's not up to us to determine whether or not we're successful at this enterprise. There is only the trying. The rest is not our business. And for more about the beauties of Eliot's poems in the four quartets, let's go into that discussion between me and Aaron and Marin.
Hi, Aaron. How are you? Hi, Michael. How are things? They're good. They're they're busy and weird, but they're good. They're busy and weird. Yeah, that's so true. Hi, Maren. How are you? I'm really good. It's rhyme day today, Aaron and Maren. <laughs> it is. Hi, Maren. And, um, hey. and I appreciate you two coming here in the morning, pretty early. I mean, not super, super duper early, but first thing in the morning to talk about a really hard poem. <laughs> it's a hard poem. I've given you enough, I think, warnings by which I mean reassurances, I hope, that will convince you that you don't need to understand this poem to have a really productive conversation about it. If you do, I won't be able to have a productive conversation about it because <laughs> I, could, I couldn't say I understand it. But so we'll just chat for a while about it. Feel free to take this conversation wherever you want, any direction, any topic, any chunk of the poem that you love and want to spend some time on, any questions that you have, please ask me and each other and, you know, I have a kind of informal list of topics we could hit if you want. So I'll just kind of spend 30 seconds and tell you what those items are. But it's not an agenda. You know, it's not a request. We don't have to talk about these. We can talk about other things if you want. Could talk about how many great images there are just as images. Could talk about clearly, I mean, one of the quote unquote themes is the theme of time and repetition. And we could talk about that. I'm interested in it because it's clearly one of the formal attributes of this poem, lots of repetitions. We could talk about that. Could talk about, and here I start to get a little bit, I don't know, hazy, fuzzy. It's, it's going to be hard for me to talk about, but I'm still quite interested in doing it. The notion of God slash awe, A-W-E, awe. This poem, I think, I don't know, a, a hunch, an experience. The way I experience this poem is that it's it's kind of what it might feel like to meet God, by which I mean, God is not something that can be comprehended. And so it's, and you know, you, you know about sublime beauty and what sublime beauty is and something about this poem that he's getting at, I think that is arguing for this uncerebral, I think he's actually embracing the incomprehensibility. It's an incomprehensible poem for a reason, I think, because God and awe and beauty and time aren't comprehensible things. So we could talk about that. We could talk about the ideas of imitation and tradition because he, he's imitating people. He's fitting himself into certain traditions. He has this very famous essay. But also I'm interested in this topic because why am I assigning this book? Clearly the implication is that I think we can learn from it and there's something to be imitated or modeled. So we could talk about what we could, how we can as writers learn from this in our own poetry a hundred years later, or I guess, yeah, 80 years later. Yeah, and that's it. And uh, the last thing I'll say, I know I've talked for a lot here, but last thing I'll say is a couple things that might I want I might want to have govern our conversation. And maybe I've already made these clear, but this is, comes right after Yeats and this wonderful stanza about how can we tell the dancer from the dance? And Yeats talks about dancing in this poem. Dancing comes up, you know, from time to time. So dancing for him is a metaphor. Maybe he's reading Yeats. I don't know. And I mean, I know he's reading Yeats. I don't know if this is where this comes from, but they're both tapping into the same image of physical, embodied, unintellectual, artistic exuberance. Yeah. So I think music and dance, we're told that this is a piece of music for quartets. He talks about dancing. We can't, I, the reason why I'm not in love with analyzing or interpreting the poem is because it is a kind of dance. And how do you analyze a dance? It's just this kind of pointless. I'd much rather just dance the dance, you know? So Let's read chunks out loud and celebrate them for what they are. Lastly, this quote to start, 
with, Eliot says that, quote, genuine poetry can communicate before it is understood. And then he goes on to claim that even those who can't, for example, understand Italian can be quite moved by Dante if they just hear somebody reciting Dante. So I feel like that can help us in this conversation. So that's my putting things on the table. Feel free to jump the line and put something else on the table that you want to talk about more. A good, easy, wonderful, and most important question to begin with, as I always do, is what did you like about this poem? What's good about it? What's likable about this poem? Well, Michael, I think this is such a good question and to kind of speak to the idea of what this poem means. Uh, I have no idea what this poem means. And in fact, I, I kind of don't want to know because I think it is more enjoyable to just let the poem be what it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Experience the poem uh, rather than trying to understand it. I'm sure I would be wrong even if I... <laughs> If I hazard this. Well, I don't want to interrupt you, but I'll just say, like, when we get to the meaning section of our conversation, I, I don't think there is a secret meaning. I think the dancer is the dance, and, and it's dancing right in front of our eyes. So I, I don't, yeah, yeah, anyway, that's that. That's that. Keep Keep talking. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. But one of the things that I loved most about this poem or, or series of poems is that, uh, is how much I loved it, even though I had no idea what, what it was what it meant yeah. per se, but because it was so musical, it was so uh, spiritual, it felt cosmic almost. And there, I mean, the imagery that you had brought up earlier, there's so much beautiful imagery that swings between being very grounded and very earthy. And then in the next line, it's incredibly spiritual and super expansive. And I just felt like that was really inspiring and just awe-inspiring is a good way to put it. I, I wrote in my notes, wow, <laughs> which is not an astute thing to say, but that's how I felt as I read it. Just no. wow. It's the best thing to say. I mean, forget about astuteness. I mean, it, it's hard because, you know, you're, you teach at a college and, you know, you, you have a, a master's degree. We're trained to, you know, we want to be astute, of course, but that's why I wanted to talk about God and awe. I mean, we're just, I think poetry, this goes back to that Yeats quote about art, the end of art is ecstasy, you know? Wow. I mean, that is the most appropriate response to a great poem. Wow. I love what you say about, you said, um, Aaron, a couple of really important things. So cosmic yet grounded, and it jumps back and forth between being cosmic and grounded, right? Jumps back and forth. You said spiritual. Can I ask you, sorry to leave you hanging, Marin, but Aaron, I want to hear more about, sorry, I can't type and talk. This is going to make for a horrible recording. <laughs> spiritual. When I read this poem, I, you get the sense instantly that you're in the presence of something meaningful and beautiful. And I think spiritual, you get that sense because it's tacking matters that are quote unquote spiritual. But yeah, I don't know. Do you have anything more to say about that? If I asked you to elaborate, what would you say? I mean, there are so many instances where I found something spiritual. Uh, just one example. It says on page 39, we had the experience but missed the meaning. I felt like that word, or that line rather, was just incredibly spiritual and incredibly beautiful. That was another example where I, I just wrote WOW in all caps. Um, because it's so, it feels on the one hand, so obvious, yet so surprising and so astute. You, you look at that line, we have the experience with Miss the Meaning, and you think, wow, of course. But 
it, it's still somehow surprising. And I think that there's undeniably something spiritual about that line that prompts you to, to think about how you relate to that. I love it. It's just so good. We had the experience, but missed the meaning. I mean, just instantly you're going through your mind, thinking about all of the experiences you've had in your life that you didn't know were meaningful while you were in them. I mean, this happens over and over and over again to us. It happens at church, you know, thinking spiritually. It happens in other more generically spiritual circumstances, like relationships with people that we love. We had the experience, but missed the meaning. Your three words, Aaron, it's obvious, it's surprising, it's astute. I actually want to, sometime in this conversation, go through a list of sentences from this poem or lines that to me are those three things and achieve, that have kind of tattooed themselves into my brain. They achieve a level of profundity. They're not secretive, they're obvious, but they're so surprising. Like we've never heard them in this way before or we've forgotten them. And this book is just peppered with them. And that's absolutely one. We had the experience, but missed the meaning. It's just such a wise thing to say. Okay, Marin, sorry to leave you hanging, but what did you find likable about this poem? What would you add? I really liked how Aaron said cosmic, um, because I really enjoyed the interconnectedness of everything. Maybe this is referring back to Yeats' poem, Vacillation, where Eliot is just hovering between opposites often or two similar concepts, images, and he flits back and forth, kind of creating this web or this this net that connects it all. Um, and I, I liked that because while it made the poems more complicated because he's constantly turning around and then going back again, it made the poem seem whole and full as well. Because sometimes reducing, trying to reduce complex subjects into poems can feel overwhelming, even though it's more simplistic. And I oddly was reassured sometimes by how Eliot tackled the complexity in a complex way, um, using complex language, which communicated <laughs> that this is so hard to get at. And um, it was oddly relieving. Yeah, this is hard to get at. I don't really understand what's going on here, but I know it's not just one thing. There's this whole relationship between, oh, there's this one part where I, it was just a whole passage of, he said, deceiving and then undeceiving. And he was like, in the mo new in the moment, and in the moment it's new. And I was just like, what? He's just reversing what he says in every line, but it worked somehow. So. This is a great example of what you mean on page 29. So this is in the poem East Coker. Well, maybe I'll start on the bottom of page 28. You say I am repeating something I have said before. So the poem at times is wonderfully self-aware. You know, I get it. I'm repetitive, you know. You say I am repeating something I have said before. I shall say it again. Shall I say it again? <laughs> I don't know if anyone has written papers about the humor in the four quartets. It's not the most immediately noticeably comedic piece of writing, but I think that's kind of it's meant to be funny. I shall say it again. Shall I say it again? What a cheeky guy. In order to arrive there, to arrive where you are, to get from where you are not, you must go by a way wherein there is no ecstasy. In order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance. In order to possess what you do not possess, you must go by the way of dispossession. In order to arrive at what you are not, you must go through the way in which you are not. 
et cetera, et cetera. I'm with you, Maren. There's something wonderful. He's, he's actually telling us literally, embrace your ignorance. Weird for a college teacher to be advocating this to his students, but there is something, I mean, Keats has this whole idea of negative capability and we shouldn't be so afraid of ignorance. In fact, ignorance can be a necessary ingredient to any meaningful spiritual encounter. Do you know what I mean? I mean, what is it to be, what is it to stand in the presence of God if not to feel overwhelmed by your own ignorance? So should we feel like we should be immune to ignorance? No. Or what is it to, what is it to stand in the presence of a beautiful painting, but to feel like, wow, I am, I know so little. So he's telling us it's okay that you don't know. It's okay that you don't know. In fact, it's even good. It's even a good thing that you don't know. So the poem is kind of quite charitable in its reassurances, as you say. Yeah, I really love that. Um, what else? We can go to one of my items. What else do you guys want to talk about? Um, there's one thing I wanted to mention. I think Marin made really good points about the interconnectedness of this poem and how it reminded her of a Yeats poem. There's one part in, in the section that we were reading, this is on page 32, that kind of reminded me of Frost a little bit, because Frost is another poet that I feel is can flip between being grounded and cosmic, just yeah. from one line to the next. And so this is page 32, um, the last couple of lines, the wave cry, the wind cry, the vast waters of the petrol and the porpoise and my end is my beginning. And that really reminded me of that, that frost poem for once then something where he says, what was that whiteness truth, a pebble of quartz. And yeah. it was like, what? And that's what this poem felt like to me too, where it was just suddenly so huge and so cosmic and it just took you there. <laughs> it was really beautiful. I'm totally with you. One of my favorite examples of this it happens on page 15. This is the second section of Burnt Norton. It's probably not as bounded or close together of an example as yours was, Aaron. I'll read that first little short lyric and then the beginning of the next kind of long line section. Garlic and sapphires in the mud clot the bedded axle tree, which, wow, I mean, just as an image, I think maybe this is an image of. You know, we remember from our reading of The Wasteland that he's a poet in love with fragments and collage. So maybe this is an image of the trenches or a, a devastated, bombed out landscape. There's some kind of axle. An axle tree is an axle, like a car's axis wheels, right? So there's some kind of axis car in the mud and there's sapphires and garlic in it. So something has been I don't know, mangled or detonated. It's just, it's just a strange contradiction or strange amalgamation of, of ingredients. Garlic and sapphires in the mud clot the bedded axle tree. The trilling wire in the blood sings below inveterate scars, appeasing long forgotten wars. And then that long line section, at the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is. So suddenly we're looking at mud and garlic in the mud, and then we're looking at the still point of the turning world. We're looking at the whole globe. You know, so it's this, on one page, he'll ground you in the microscopic and zoom way out to the cosmic, right? I think, I mean, I don't think that every poem has to, every great poem has to get explicitly cosmic. This one does and many other great poems do. But I do think that every poem has to aspire in its own way to 
a version of this universalism. I do think that that's a mandatory ingredient for a great poem. Yeah. Um, maybe I'll read. I, I'm, I'm doing too much talking, so interrupt me. Let's just highlight some of our best, our favorite bits. I have one. So I, I absolutely love the, what you had just pointed out, garlic and the sapphires in the mud, clot the bedded axle tree, because of the, the beauty and the horror that is mixed together. Yeah, that's a good way of saying it. It's just really moving. Um, on page 24, the line, the dahlias sleep in the empty silence, wait for the early owl. I felt like that was <laughs> really lovely. Just so airy. Uh, that, that's another thing this poem does is that it it moves through so many different feelings, so many different experiences where it, it feels solid. Marin had alluded to this feeling of fullness in this poem, which I, I thought was a great way to describe it, Marin. But then it is also light and airy and in other places. And I don't I don't know how he did this. It's really brilliant. That's great. I have several things to say in follow up, but Marin, any other favorite bits or moments? that you definitely wanted to get on air? I really loved a couple of lines in the Dry Salvages poem too. I think page 33, I might have a different book edition. Okay. But it's, we cannot think of a time that is oceanless or of an ocean not littered with wastage or of a future that is not liable like the past to have no destination. I really love, we cannot think of a time that is oceanless. I don't know why, but that strikes me. It's so vast, but so applicable to our current world, even though this is, you know, it's it's slightly modern, contemporary, but it doesn't feel like it's meant to be an environmental poem. But because this whole selection, this whole, all these quartets are speaking to our world. It almost turns into this spiritual world poem, which is inherently environmental to me. Um, that's great. So. No, that's great. And the section that this comes from is a section in which the river is presented as a kind of God, right? The river, I mean, it's not surprising that he gets this, this is a very antique classical image. Her comes from Heraclitus, I guess, who gives us one of the epigraphs for this book. Epigraphs, by the way, which he doesn't translate, you know, he assumes that we can read ancient Greek, which is a bit snobbish of him. One of one of these epigraphs is from Heraclitus, who is attributed with this, with having said, you can't step in the same river twice. You know, it was either him or Pocahontas. I can't remember. But <laughs> And so the river is, has always for millennia been a symbol of timelessness or cyclicalness or eternity or, I mean, maybe that in and itself is a kind of poetic lesson from us that we don't need to... And now suddenly realize that I want to say eight things that are all slightly different. So, oh dear, here's one of them. We don't need to write anything new and we don't need to write it in a new way. I mean, he loves the river and what is the river if not the same? Year in, year out, day in, day out. I mean, it's kind of different, I guess. You never step in the same river twice, but it's also the same. <laughs> I mean, maybe this is the point. And also look at, find those bits where he's basically plagiarizing Ecclesiastes. You know the bits I mean. There's two, there's two moments, I think, where you think, wait a minute. Twice he does this. Why can't I find them? Michael, I don't know if this is the one that you're looking for, but in my version on page 24, are you referring to the time of the seasons and the constellations, the time of milking and the time of harvest? Yes, that's exactly it. 
Okay, yeah, good. First, go to page 23. You found them. Very good, thank you. First, go to page 23. If you have a different edition, it's the very first page of East Coker. Um, he says, houses live and die. There is a time for building and a time for living and for generation and a time for the wind to break the loosened pane and to shake the wainscot where the field mouse trots and to shake the tattered arras woven with a silent motto. You flip the page. He keeps saying stuff like this. Keeping time, keeping the rhythm in their dancing as in their living, in their living seasons, the time of the seasons and the constellations, the time of milking and the time of harvest, the time of coupling of man and woman and that of beast. This He's, he's rewriting Ecclesiastes, right? You all know these scriptures. And it's also, keep in mind, Ecclesiastes, who says there is nothing new under the sun. So he knows that there's no need. His friend Ezra Pound says this horribly annoying things that make it new, you know? I think great poets constantly prove that you don't really necessarily have to make it new. This isn't exactly Ecclesiastes. There's new modern elements to this. That's true. But there's an it in that sentence, make it new. What is the it? It's what we've inherited. It's the tradition. It's the past texts that we have, you know? So as poets, what is the takeaway? Absolutely feel free to riff riff off of, model, steal, inherit, parrot, any old ancient text that you like. If time is a river and we're all in the same river, you know, we're still in Ecclesiastes. So why not keep writing in that mode, yeah? What else would, could we say about in the idea of imitation and tradition? You can answer this question in the way that, in which he has been influenced by traditions or in the way that you think you could be influenced in your own work by him. So there's a whole kind of genealogy here of, of this question. What would you say? Do you feel like there are things here that will change in your own poetry after having read this? I haven't read too many quartets or collection of poems that are meant to go together as a specific collection of poems like a a movement yeah and this format has been kind of eye-opening for me and i'm really intrigued by well it's especially just how elliot does it because he's talking so much about endings and beginnings and the beginning of his poem is like an ending and the ending of his poem is a beginning. That's right. This very circular feel. I I want to try that. I've read a I read a book. It's a series actually when I was younger called Circle and there's three books and technically it doesn't matter which book you begin with. Oh cool. They lead you all back and and I felt that as I was reading this like I could start at a different quartet and I wondered what the experience would be like if I started at dry salvages, yeah, right. you know? So I, I, I don't really know if that's an imitation of someone else though, this circular poem I would, I'd ask. I don't know. Do I know? I mean, I don't know. It's, it's clearly a style. It's clearly a structure that he's chosen because he's been inspired by certain precepts of classical philosophy or Buddhism or Hinduism or even Christian theology, you know, the sense that there is no time or God stands outside of time. So he wants to create a book that isn't linear, right? If the ultimate reality isn't linear, then he wants to write a poem that isn't linear. And scholars have kind of annoyingly attached seasons to each of these four books. So I don't really know anymore which is supposed to be which season. I don't really care. 
but like, you know, Burnt Norton is supposed to be, I don't know, fall or something or summer. And each, each of them apparently have, are tinged with certain seasons and carry certain seasonal motifs, I guess. I don't know. But even that too, it's like, where does, what is the first season? Spring, winter, summer? It's, it's a pointless question. It's a circle. So I love this comment that you could, you could start reading in the third poem and just, you know, loop around and it would be an equivalent experience. It might be a different experience, but it wouldn't be a, a, a more valid or less valid. It wouldn't even be that different necessarily. You know what I mean? Because this, this thing is a kind of never ending loop. One of the, the meta level takeaway might be, don't worry about what something I try to not worry so much about as a writer is what an editor in a magazine is going to want to publish. Like, oh, this is three pages and they're not going to want to give three pages to a poem or oh, this chapter is too long, or, oh, nobody publishes a book in this format, or YA books have to be a certain length, or a, they, they have to follow certain patterns or certain norms. I just think if you want to write a poem that is a weird shape and a weird length and a weird structure, is it one poem or is it four? Just go for it. You know, you just absolutely must just go for it. And even that the poems don't have to have this stock form of importance, like you start with a striking image and then you yeah. kind of weave your way in and you end with something grand. A nonlinear poem seems like it can be important in, in unexpected places, which That's is wonderful. I, it feels very opening to me as a very aspiring wannabe poet. <laughs> that's no, that's great. We don't say that about yourself. That's not true. I mean, in a sense, we all are, I guess. I know what you're saying. Um, <laughs> No, but that's wonderful. We we do as poets, especially in workshop, fall into this rut of like, okay, what the poem needs to do is start with an image or an anecdote or a scene, describe that scene, and then leap off into some kind of abstraction or universal or moral. You know, this is the kind of Wordsworth, this is the mode that Wordsworth invented, autobiographical. I went, found these daffodils, they were beautiful, wandered around among them, and then I went and laid on my couch and swooned for a while. It's like not every poem has to start with an image or a place. You can just start with a sound or a piece of syntax or a rhythm or a structure. And the images can come later. You can start with a, a truth claim, an abstraction. Marin, I just want to say I loved so much of what you said. I thought that that was really just spot on for this poem. And I, I think I'd like to go back to kind of what, what Marin was talking about with the circular nature of this poem, because I, I, I think something that Elliot does that is truly remarkable is how yes he calls out like yeah I'm repeating the same thing over and over again but he does repeat the same idea or even the same phrases in ways that feel again to speak about what we mentioned earlier obvious yet surprising to where you just pause on certain lines so in in my edition this comes on page 40 the bitter apple and the bite in the apple and I feel like that that's a really wonderful sensory way to describe this idea of the beginning and the end where where does it start where does it end it's all a circle by talking about something that a lot of us do eat apples and yeah the way he phrases it the bitter apple and the bite in the apple i mean if i just saw that line i would feel like tell me more okay good <laughs> i think that it's beautiful the way that, that he's done that and as i read this this poem I really just have no idea how he did it, but I'm, I'm not mad about it. It's great. <laughs> it's a wonderful syntactic microcosm of the larger theme of the book. So the larger structure of the book repeats and is cyclical, but 
even on the level of the line, the, the sounds will loop back on themselves, right? The sounds will be echoes of each other. That's another great lesson for us too. Like this can get annoying, I suppose, but you can find ways of organically embedding into the formal aspects of your poem, any kind of thematic or content or argument that the poem is attempting to make, right? How can we know the dancer from the dance, right? There's no such thing as content over here and form over here in this poem. It's all fused together. It's fused together on the level of the book, but on the level of the line. There's a list of sentences every human being should know, poetry lover or not, that come from this book that I want to highlight. But I want to now, what I'm going to do is try to play some music and Beethoven 15th string quartet. So Eliot talks about this poem. He talks about the composition of this poem and he calls them quartets. And in letters, I can't remember letters or journals, he makes specific reference to Beethoven's string quartets, specifically this 15th, Beethoven's 15th string quartet. I'm going to try playing with you now, playing for you now. Not all of it, of course, but one of my favorite bits, just so that you can hear it. And we'll listen to it for a couple minutes, and then I'll read the beginning of Burton Norton, just to kind of not necessarily do an annoying compare and contrast, but just to drive home the, the point that what he's aspiring to is music. It isn't philosophy. It isn't argument. It isn't necessarily even theology, although the- theology comes into it. It's art, right? He's aspiring to a kind of music. If he wanted to relay information, if he had information to give us, if he had a philosophy, he should have just written prose. You know what I mean? So listen for about two minutes. Yeah, and then I'll, I'll, we'll regroup. Does this work? Does this be okay? Does this make sense? Okay, one, two, three, go.
Let's regroup. I mean, <laughs> isn't that the most beautiful thing you've ever heard in your entire life? Oh, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. I just want to know what you think about that piece of music. I mean, it's just so great, right? It's just so, so beautiful. Why is it so beautiful? It's so calming. It's so soothing. It's so, it's like, I'm not, I don't, I don't know anything about music. I'm not going to sound technical or informed in any way, but it's only made of like that section of that quartet is only made of like four or five notes. It's this like ascending scale of four or five notes. But every time he goes up that ascension, there's a new note added or a new twist or a new harmony, a new bass note, you know? So it's like making these very slow and gentle rotations around this motif, you know? It's like the most beautiful thing ever. Can't you hear the four quartets in that song? It's like if the four quartets, if 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 that song, if that piece of music became words in a new life, it would be these words. So I want you to explain to me what I mean by that. What is what are the what is what did that piece of music and these words have in common? And how can we why am I asking this? How did he capture that kind of um tone, power, movement? Yeah. At some points in the music, I could tell, I, I could identify the separation of the different instruments. And at other times they were all woven together. So it was like the polyphonic versus monophonic, like the one voice, the multiple voices. And I feel like that happens in, in Eliot's poems as well, where sometimes it's all together. And then you have all these different voices, these different images, um, these different, he switches between different rhyme schemes, um, but then it all like slides back together in certain passages. What an absolutely great thing to say. I mean, that's another reason it hadn't occurred to me until you said it, but that's another reason why I love that section of that quartet so much, because there's four people playing and you're absolutely right. Sometimes it sounds like one and sometimes they, they branch out and Beethoven wants you to hear all four. Sometimes he wants you to hear two and then one again. Eliot's doing that exact same thing. What, what a great thing to say. I want to read a couple sections where maybe this is noticeable, but any other, I don't know, any other thoughts about this? I think that, that that particular section of music that we listen to is a lot like this Eliot poem in the sense of fullness that, that Marin talked about at the beginning of our chat that I felt like there was such a sense of fullness in the music as well, even when they weren't all playing at once. Yeah. It, it still felt incredibly full and that music was very blended and very cyclical itself in the yeah. way Eliot's poem is. This is great, fullness. So by fullness, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you mean probably <clears throat> that there's a whole range of tones, right? We get that bassy, that wonderful bassy, deep cello, I guess it must be. And then the, the, the very high, everything from there up to the very high notes of the highest violin. So Eliot similarly will be talking about war. I don't know what the bass equivalent would be, but I mean, you, you could arrange this spectrum any way you wanted, but he, the full range of human experience or human life harvests, weddings, space, dancing, war. I mean, what's left out of this poem? Coca-Cola, I guess. You know, he doesn't get pop culture-y. But in terms of what's universal in the human experience, it's kind of all there, yeah? I want to read the beginning, not because I love it particularly more than the most. I do quite love it. But I do think it, it's representative enough of what we've been talking about to kind of put on display here for a minute. So this is the very beginning, Burt Norton. And think about that quartet and think about what both you, Marin, and Aaron have said about 
the way in which it has this full range of expression, the way in which you can sometimes hear one voice and sometimes hear many voices, the way in which phrases will loop back. It's just, it's more or less an ascending scale of three or four notes or three or four syntactical bits. Yeah. That he keeps circling back on. And Aaron, you said something like maybe 10 or 15 minutes ago by now, like about how, and maybe this is dovetails with fullness, but the poem wonderfully shifts and shifts and shifts from one tone to another. It can be happy. It can be serious. It can be light. It can be rhymy. It can be prosy. It can be meditative. It can be assertive. It can be questioning. It can be pretty much anything. Here we go. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. Footfalls echo in the memory down the passage which we did not take toward the door we never opened into the rose garden. My words echo thus in your mind. But to what purpose? Disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaves, I do not know. Other echoes inhabit the garden. Shall we follow them? Quick, said the bird, find them, find them round the corner, through the first gate, into our first world. Shall we follow the deception of the thrush into our first world? There they were, dignified, invisible, moving without pressure, over the dead leaves, in the autumn heat, through the vibrant air, and the bird called in response to the unheard music hidden in the shrubbery, and the unseen eye beam crossed, for the roses had the look of flowers that are looked at. There they were as our guests, accepted and accepting. So we moved, and they, in a formal pattern, along the empty alley, into the box circle, to look down into the drained pool, dry the pool, dry concrete, brown-edged, and the pool was filled with water out of sunlight, and the lotus rose, quietly, quietly, the surface glittered out of heart of light, and they were behind us, reflected in the pool. Then a cloud passed, and the pool was empty. Go, said the bird, for the leaves were full of children, hidden excitedly, containing laughter. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Time past and time future, what might have been and what has been, point to one end, which is always present. So, in a minute, we should probably talk about what this poem means, <laughs> I guess. But just describe the dance. How I All I want to know is, as I read that, what was your experience? It's the exact same question as this music, right? It, I'm not asking what it means. I'm just asking what happened to your body and soul, you know, when you were reading that along with me. What is the experience of reading this poem? Does it make you anxious? Does it make you calm? Does it make you a bit of both? In the beginning, it felt very big which maybe made me feel small or almost like a witness, like I'm witnessing some something starting. And with the garden scenes, when, when the garden happens, it started to feel kind of magical and made me curious. Like we're entering this first world. Yeah. And I'm going somewhere. Fairy tale, adventure. I don't know. Yeah. And now animals are talking, but it's just like I, I'm moving 
I felt like I was moving somewhere now. And I think the music did that as well, where it kind of carries you, you start moving with it. And maybe that's part of the dance. This like, we're moving, we don't know where, and you don't even know necessarily where you started, but now you're moving somewhere. Such great things. I mean, you don't know where we are. You don't know where we started, but you do get a sense generally of we're starting big and then we're going micro, you know, and this wonderful mystery. I mean, mystery, mystery, mystery. He must be doing this for a reason. Whose garden? What garden? Why is a bird talking? Who are we? Who are these children in the leaves? What is going on? Why? This is a good question. Isn't this confusing? Isn't this bad? You can't do this in a poem. Workshop would say, I need to know who's talking, I need to know where we are, and I need to know when we are, and I need to know the relationship between these people in the scene. Why is why are why does Eliot get to be celebrated for breaking all of these rules? His poems are so pleasing that I think he he can get away with things like that. <laughs> to kind of speak to that question that you had earlier about how this poem makes you feel, I definitely felt movement that that Marin had suggested, um, in particular, the top of page 14, round the corner through the first gate into our first world, shall we follow? The deception of the thrush into our first world. It, It felt very dizzying, but not necessarily in a bad way. It was almost like when you're a little kid and you're spinning around and it's not really a bad feeling. It's exciting and it's fun. And as an adult, I don't, uh, it doesn't feel quite as exciting and and fun because (laughs) I feel like a little sick. (laughs) So I long for that feeling that I had as a little kid. (laughs) No, but the, the, the the grown up equivalent might be dancing, you know, that there's a sense of like loss of control combined with hyper control. I wouldn't know. I don't dance. You know, I've forbidden myself from doing such things long ago, but I've heard, you know, people say that that's part of the appeal, that it's this, you, there's this moment when years of technical training allows you to transcend the rules and you become this kind of like unbounded energy. What would I say if somebody asked me the question, how does Elliot get away with it? Well, Marin, you kind of alluded to this earlier, I think he's writing the poem he wants to write. You know, like if you want to write a poem or a book that you know an editor won't like or a publisher doesn't fit the scaffolding of the genre, um, you will have people tell you that doesn't fit the scaffolding of the genre. But, you know, if you have enough confidence in your project, maybe you shouldn't listen to that. Maybe you shouldn't. I mean, this is dangerous advice to give because we all need advice. You know, we all need good counsel and usually workshop gives good counsel. Um, and usually we're blind to our own works, errors and flaws. But I just think if you, I don't know, there's gotta be, there's, you have to stick up for what you want your poem to be. You have to. So he gets away with it because he, he chooses to get away with it. You know, um, another answer might be that he tells us, as you say, throughout the poem, like, don't worry, I'm not making sense. Don't worry, I'm repeating myself. It's all part of the plan. He's aware of it. He's not making unconscious mistakes. He's making conscious ones, I guess. (laughs) You know what I mean. Um, But also, and we should transition here maybe to talk about God or awe. And, you know, I don't know if you have anything to say about this, but this poem is a, one reason I love this poem so much is because it reminds me that religion, spirituality, the divine, and the artistic and the aesthetic all exist in the kind of in a, in, a, in a similar realm. You feel in the presence of God what you feel like in the presence of a great work of art. Stunned, 
into silence, into this wonderful state where comprehension is an irrelevant factor. You know? I don't know. Anything to say about God or awe and beautiful ignorance? There are two lines I just wanted to point out. I felt like in the later poems, it got more overtly spiritual or religious talking about God. But in the beginning, on page, I think, 17, is that it? No. In the first poem, section three, mm-hmm. there's, I love this line that says, men and bits of paper whirled by the cold wind, which isn't overtly spiritual, but it kind of made me think of the Christian notion of the nothingness of man, that man and bits of paper together are whirled about in this world that's beyond our control and our comprehension. Yeah. And we are just carried along and witnesses to it. Yeah. And then the next page um, now channels a different kind, well, two pages in section five. It's channeling Eastern religion, spirituality. At the beginning of section five, kind of towards the beginning, the lines, can words or music reach the stillness as a Chinese jar still moves perpetually in its stillness? This almost Zen moment that's right which i think that that stillness gets at what you were saying about being stunned i I think that expresses that a little bit that this can words or music reach this what whatever feeling we're trying to communicate this awe where like a chinese jar we're moving but still we're in this state of zen experiencing but not experiencing words can't and that's what this that's one of the things that this poem is about uh burnt norton section five words after speech reach into the silence only by the form the pattern can words or music reach the stillness as a chinese jar still moves perpetually in its stillness to repeat what you just read but then he keeps going words strain crack and sometimes break under the burden under the tension slip slide perish decay with imprecision will not stay in place will not stay still any poem that tries to let's say f the ineffable but that sounds bad um beauty and god and the divine are ineffable they cannot be articulated especially with something as crude in language, with something as crude as language, words strain under the burden. So of course, any poem that aims at that is going to look slippery, you know? In East Coker, he says, he's talking about how to write poetry. This is section five of East Coker. He says, and so each venture is a new beginning. This is so great. This is like what every writer needs to read as a prayer every time they get up in the morning. Every venture, every new page, every new chapter, every new line is a new start. Nothing that worked last time will necessarily work again. It's a new start every time. Every venture, each venture is a new beginning. A raid on the inarticulate with shabby equipment always deteriorating. That's what language is. It's shabby. We have these words and we fumble about. They're deteriorating in the general mess of imprecision of feeling, undisciplined squads of emotion. And what there is to conquer by strength and submission has already been discovered once or twice or several times by men whom one cannot hope to emulate. You know, like, oh no, oh to a nightingale exists. I should just give up. I think I, I have that thought every day. Oh to a nightingale exists. I don't need to, to, to keep trying. 
But then the pep talk, Elliot, you know, halftime coach comes in and says, but there is no competition. We're not in competition with those authors. There is only the fight to recover what has been lost and found and lost again and again, and now under conditions that seem unpropitious, but perhaps neither gain nor loss. For us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. You all need a plaque that says that above your writing desks. For us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. So what is this poem about? I won't ask you because it's an annoying question. It's about time. It's about death. It's about life. It's about God. That's what makes it great. What isn't it about? It's about everything important. So note to all aspiring writers out there, including myself, if you want to write a lasting poem, make it a poem that's about everything important. You know, be ambitious. I mean, you know, this is written after the wars, after the Second World War. It's about time passes, things decay, things are blown to smithereens. To quote the Yeatsian line, it's about how the center cannot hold. You know, those wonderful bits in East Coker, they're all gone under the hill. The dancers are all gone under the hill, you know. So it's about destruction and death and loss. If I asked you, maybe I will ask you this because I'm talking too much. So he's looking at the world. He's looking at a world of destruction and loss and chaos. And I think he's asking himself a question. From which vantage point can we stand to make honest sense of this or to somehow transcend it or to somehow better endure it? And maybe the poem doesn't answer that. But if the poem does have an answer to that question, from which vantage point can we stand to make honest sense of loss and death? What is the poem's consolation? It's such a big question. Yeah. One of the things that came to mind was on the bottom of page 31, the last two lines, love is most nearly itself when here and now cease to matter. That's so good. I love those lines. And I feel like that's a really hard thing that he pulls off in this poem is to talk about love in an abstraction. It can go wrong in so many ways and does in, in yeah. so many of my attempts. Um, but I, I think that that is something that this poem com- comes up again in this poem over and over again is, Very is good. you know, a lot of the things that had been mentioned before of uh, God and cycles and life and humanity and the, the phrase that you so astutely said, said that this poem is about everything that matters and love, I think, is a big part of, of this poem. You know, he doesn't talk about it overtly other than, you know, here and there and in these two lines in particular. But that was something that really just left, left a big impression on me as I yeah, read it. Yeah, I love it. I really like what Aaron just said about love. And I actually, when you asked that question, I thought of a different section, the very last poem, section five of poem four. In the middle of the beginning, there's these lines that say, every phrase and every sentence is an end and a beginning. Every poem, an epitaph. And any action is a step to the block, to the fire, down the sea's throat, or to an illegible stone. And that is where we start. And that kind of made me think of this is maybe our vantage point, or at least as poets, as communicators, as organizers almost. So we're organizing words, kind of like the organizing matter. But Wow, this is so great. You both said love organizing and just doing it, like just starting it, like every step, just take a step, you know? Can I just have three more minutes? I know it's time. Can I please just have three more minutes? Because I think it's important. 
yeah, what do we do? We, we're born into a world that is full of flux and loss and chaos and pain and destruction. What do we do? Well, we remind ourselves that we're part of a larger cycle to everything there is a season. That's one remedy or, or consolation or method of transcendence. We remain humble. There's that wonderful line, humility is endless, right? We order the chaos into order, as Marin is saying. We love, and I think the love comes up in like um, this Christian notion of the, the crucifixion. There's that wonderful thing. There's that wonderful section, uh, East Coker section four, I think it is. He specifically mentions Good Friday and Christ. So there's something about noble sacrifice what do you do? Well, sacrifice in some way brings redemption. Sacrificing for people that we love is one of the solutions to this cosmic problem. Yeah? Try to see things outside of time. Get a kind of bird's eye perspective. Don't be so caught up in your day-to-day -day problems that don't really matter or have any eternal significance, right? Also, ignorance, yeah, like don't hate yourself for being ignorant. Learn that ignorance is a gift in some ways. Yeah, I would say that's one method of transcendence or coping. It's a poem that I think offers answers to the problems of being human. And there's a list of sentences or phrases or lines that have become so, some of these are very famous. And in a, in a, in a book of poems, it's only like 40 pages. It's very slim, 50 pages. To have 12 of these is really phenomenal. And they're all, they all deserve to be tattooed on you hope BYU isn't listening, right? Or engraven somewhere, hung up in your home, because they're all so great. For example, you are here to kneel where prayer has been valid, he says. Oh my gosh, that's so good. You know, you're not here to make it new. You're not here to smash the system. You're here to kneel in a tradition of poetry and art and philosophy and spiritualism that has been proven successful and wise and good. And your job is to pay homage to that. You are here to kneel where prayer has been valid. Another one, speech impelled us to purify the dialect of the tribe. That's the job of poets, to purify the dialect of the tribe. He talks about an easy commerce of the old and new. There's no such thing as the old. So ransack from Keats, ransack from Homer. The old is the new. I have this on my list too, uh, Aaron. Love is more itself when here and now cease to matter. It's so good. Every poem and epitaph. The end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to see the place for the first time. How good is that? It's just like no, nothing wiser has ever been said. The end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to see the place for the first time. Human, humankind cannot bear very much reality. Home is where one starts from, et cetera, et cetera. And then that one long sex section that I already read that I won't again about uh, there is no competition. So it's just like a catalog of insanely distilled hard-won wisdom that teaches us how to live. You know, think about that the next time you are here to kneel where prayer has been valid. Next time you go to church or read a great poem or, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Thank you both so much. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. 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 Now for the writing prompt. Eliot's use of repetition in this poem is directly linked to his claim that time present and time past are one and the same. In the beginning is my end, and in the end is my beginning. His repetitions make statements like this formally true, 
giving the poem a kind of circular structure, but they also have the effect of making time seem to pause or slow down or turn on itself as you read. So for this writing prompt, you can just try using repetitions to a similar effect. You can invent your own structure of repetitions, repeating lines and words and phrases in a way that seems natural and effective to you, or you can try using particular forms that are well-suited for this effect, forms like the villanelle and the pantoum, the structures of which you can just simply find on Google. Both the pantoum and the villanelle have quite frequent and insistent repetitions, so they're very good at making time seem to repeat itself. But if you're inventing your own system of repetitions, I'd urge you maybe to model yours on Eliot's or find another poem that repeats and get inspiration from that. Exactly what temporal effects your poem has will, of course, depend on how often you repeat and for how long, and also how large the chunks are that you're using for your repetitions. So I'd encourage you to just experiment and to see what happens. Today's poem of the day is an example of the kind of thing that repetition can achieve in a poem. It's a very short poem by the poet Greg Williamson, and it's called New Year's, A Short Pantoum. I'll read this, but I'd also really encourage you to Google it because it's kind of remarkable to look at on the page to see exactly how he's achieving these wonderful syntactical variations. So this is New Year's, A Short Pantoum by Greg Williamson. The sunlight was falling. A part played out in the deep snow. We were all there. At the start, we knew how the year would go, played out in the deep snow. The sunlight was falling apart. We knew how the year would go. We were all there at the start. So that's it for now. Next time I will be chatting with Liz about Rilke's Duino elegies. So I'm really looking forward to that. In the meantime, keep writing, keep reading. Don't forget There is no competition. There is only the trying. The rest is not our business. And you too have what it takes to become a great writer.